Good morning. I thought about doing like a real quick costume change. I didn't, um, obviously. Uh, how many of you guys have a family member or family members that just drive you up the wall? Yes. Yes. Maybe sitting right next to you. Um, maybe it's the uncle that's always posting political stuff on Facebook, and you call your mom like every week and say, Mom, Uncle Ricky did it again. <laughs> did you see what he did? Uh, we have family members that we, we, we grew up with, and now we look at and go, I can't believe we came from the same place. Uh, I can't believe we're cut from the same cloth, have the same blood, wh- whatever. Um, and you know, family is the one thing we can't choose. We can't choose which family we're born into. And there's often a lot of beautiful and great things, but also often a lot of pain and heartache and maybe bitterness and resentment and, and struggles because families are difficult. And it goes beyond Uncle Ricky on Facebook. Uh, sometimes it's a brother or sister or a parent that you haven't spoken to in years because something happened and you never quite made amends, and it's just been sitting there. Uh, maybe it's uh, baggage that you've held onto and wounds that you've held onto since childhood um, that have been kind of weighing you down and slowly but surely playing themselves out in your life now. You're seeing the same things, you do the same things in the same ways um, that maybe your family did in the past, and that's driving you crazy. Or maybe you have a family member that like made it big, like is really successful in a career-wise and way wealthier than the rest of the family, and they think they're awesome, but you're like, I remember you. I know where you came from. I remember when you ate that or when you did whatever, right? Um, we have that family member that might forget their roots, and they're kind of frustrating. Maybe you're that family member. I don't know. <laughs> family can be difficult, and I think family can be tough. Uh, one reason is just out of sheer proximity and opportunity. Your family is probably who you spend the most time with growing up in the first 18 years of your life. So there's just more opportunity for things to go awry. Uh, so proximity and opportunity is one way, one reason that maybe we, we're, we all experience frustrations with our family. And, but secondly, also just expectations. We have such high expectations and longings and desires for our family, particularly our parents, maybe our siblings. siblings. Um, and we think this is not how families should speak to each other. This is not what a family life should look like. And because there's proximity and opportunity and because there's great expectation, um, there's opportunity for, for great disappointment. In fact, Richard Rohr says that expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. That's super cynical, right? <laughs> expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. Um, that's a heavy thought, but I, I see that so true in, in, in family life where we have these expectations of what should be and there's a disappointment with what actually is. And that's kind of the situation we find in the story of Numbers chapter 12 today when we look at the life of Moses. Moses is the leader of Israel. He's leading them from slavery in Egypt towards the promised land, towards a new nation and a new identity. And right beside him to his left and to his right are Aaron and Miriam, his brother and his sister. So Moses is the leader, but right beside him in in command are brother and sister. And that can lead to all sorts of fun. How many of you guys have ever worked with a family member? It's fun. I grew up uh, working at a comic book shop. My dad owned a baseball card and comic book shop. It's basically like one-eyed jacks, but with baseball cards, okay, in comics. So I played comics, uh, played Magic, played Dungeons & Dragons, Warhammer, all the stuff. And everybody's like, that sounds great. It was great, but it was complicated at times. My dad was a workaholic. He worked like 100 hours a week. If I ever wanted to see my father, it was at work, when I were, where I was his employee. And I got paid five bucks an hour from age 14 to 21. 
And for the past four years of that, I was like the whole manager of the store, like made all the orders, did everything, five bucks an hour. I think that's illegal. <laughs> it's not cool. So it was a cool experience going up and reading comics, but you know, we had, there's some, some tension sometimes. There's times when I actually needed my father to be my father and not my boss. Um, and sometimes that led to complications and disappointment and, and frustration. And that's just what we know as a dual relationship. So dual relationship is where you have more than one type of relationship with the same person. So maybe, you, maybe your best friend got you a job at the company and now you are working under him and the relationship has changed. Maybe you work with a parent or you work with a spouse or you, whatever it might be and, and it's just complicated at times. This is a dual relationship. It can add some, some layers there. And we see that going on here in the book of Numbers. Moses is the little brother and he's now in charge. An older brother and older sister have some frustrations and some qualms with them. So that's where the story picks up this morning. Let's check it out. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. No. And they said, has the Lord indeed only, uh, spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the, cloud rem- when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord. Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed for seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. Now if you guys are anything like me after reading that story and listening to that story, your first thought is, what? What? <laughs> like, she had a complaint um, and brought it to Aaron, and then God comes down in a cloud and smoke like, this, like the smoke monster from Lost, and he starts dishing out truth, and when the cloud lifts, just Miriam has leprosy. And Miriam has leprosy. What's up with that? That's weird, right? So when I read this story, there's so much weird stuff going on. It starts off like, they were mad about Moses being married to a Cushite woman. It's like, are they racist? You know, Moses is an Arab. He's Jewish. And, and the Cushite would have been from like Ethiopia. So an Arab person married like a dark-skinned African. Is that the complaint here? That doesn't really seem consistent with what we know about Miriam and Aaron. So just what's going on in the story? Um, so I have like a lot of questions about it. And that's actually this morning. I just want to walk through the questions and see what we can learn from it. So the questions I have for, what was the actual complaint against Moses? On the surface, it looks like racism. 
Uh, it's not. We'll dig into that in a second. Uh, secondly, why was it even a sin? Why, why was what Miriam did a sin? Uh, next, why was just Miriam punished and not Aaron as well? And then last, uh, why leprosy? Why this specific type of punishment? It's kind of a weird thing. So if you guys would indulge me for a few minutes, I want to kind of give some background and context and story to this that really, to me, brings it to life. It makes it 3D. It makes it understandable and, and, and relatable. Um, and I went and did some research and digging into the, uh, the Midrash, basically the Jewish commentary on the Torah. And so you have a lot of these stories that are very short, and then the, the Jewish people would kind of come in and, and expound on it and say, well, this is really what was going on behind the scenes, or this is what we think it means. So here's kind of their commentary and their thoughts on the story that we just read. So first off, what was the actual complaint? They said um, they were complaining about Moses because he had married a, a Cushite woman. Well, the first thing I noticed when I started doing some digging is that the complaint isn't about the relationship itself, okay? The complaint isn't about the fact that he married a Cushite woman. The complaint is about the condition of that relationship currently, meaning Moses was not being a good husband to this woman, in fact, the implication is that he chose to completely separate from her so that he could focus his attention and his time with hearing from God. And Miriam was, was frustrated by that. And that's why one of the complaints is that Moses is neglecting his wife. And he's saying he hears from God and that's why he's neglecting his wife. But, but doesn't God also speak to us? So that's kind of the nature of, of her complaint. Why she says, doesn't God speak to us as well. So the, the issue is not the relationship itself, it's the nature and the condition of the relationship that Moses was being celibate in order to hear from God. Doesn't God speak to us too? Who does Moses think that he is? Who does our little brother think that he is? Now for Miriam, this triggered a, a particularly visceral reaction in her, and this is why. Now the complaint was this, Moses separated from his wife and stopped sleeping with her. That was the complaint, okay? It triggered an visceral reaction in her because back in the day, at the beginning of Exodus, when, when Miriam was just a child, the Pharaoh of Egypt issued an edict or an order that the Egyptians should go in and kill all the baby boys. This is the very first chapter in the book of Exodus. So the Pharaoh issues this order, we're gonna, all the sons that are born, we're going to kill them because we're afraid of the population of Israel growing. Now, Miriam is born at this time, and her father makes a decision to separate from his wife, to, slop, to stop sleeping with her. That way, he didn't have sons that are just killed and murdered. It's a reasonable response. Hey, they're going to kill our kids. Let's just not have them. That's reasonable. But what happens is, is the rest of the community looks at Amram, the father, Miriam's father, and wants to follow suit. Hey, that's actually wise to do. But here's the problem. The reason Pharaoh ordered the edict is to control the population of Israel. If all the Israelite men stop sleeping with their wives and they stop having children, it's going to accomplish what the Pharaoh wanted to accomplish to begin with. Pharaoh is going to win if they behave and respond in that way. Miriam sees this and she goes and confronts her father directly and says, you need to stop acting like a coward. You need to continue to have a healthy marriage with your wife and you need to trust that God is going to protect us. The way you're acting right now is going to lead us astray. So Miriam goes and confronts her father at an early age. We need to understand this about Miriam. She is per perceived by the Jewish people as a strong, compassionate, and convicted leader. She's a symbol for feminism in the, in the Old Testament and for the Jewish people. She is a strong leader. She just errs in the story we read today. But in this earlier example, when she confronts her father, this is a hero story. 
because Miriam confronted her father and said, you need to act courageously, they reconnected. A few months later, they give birth to Moses. She then acts courageously again and sends Moses down the river and saves him, and then she raises him. And because she acted courageously towards her father, Moses is born, and because Moses is born, years later, Moses comes back and frees the people of Israel. Miriam is a pivotal part of the story. So she remembers a time in her past when a man in power withdrew from his wife and separated, and it was an act of cowardice. And when she sees Moses do the same thing now as they're traveling towards the promised land and sees him separate from his wife and use God as a reason, she gets triggered, and probably rightfully so. The problem is, is in this instance, she's actually wrong. God comes down and says, no, in this instance, Moses is right. I speak to him differently than anyone else. And in this season where you're traveling, he's going to have a different relationship with his wife because he's going to have a different relationship with me because I speak to him directly and he needs to focus all of his energy on that. So in that instance, Miriam is actually wrong, but she's triggered by pain from her past events in her early childhood. That's why she responds in this way. What I get from that is I can relate so much to Miriam in this story where there's things in my past, there's pain and disappointments in my past that shape the way I view present pains and disappointments. There's times when I overreact, I quickly judge, I assume the worst, I go to the worst place, and I act out of that conviction because it's, it's hitting a previous wound. And when I see something that hits a previous wound in my life, I want to do everything I can to avoid repeating that or avoid getting near that pain. We get triggered by our past, and the pain of our past shapes our perspective of the present. One thing I notice that I do in my family, maybe you guys can relate is there's people that I knew growing up, and I just, I just see that person, that cousin, that uncle, whatever. I see them today in the same way that I experienced them 20 years ago. I say, oh, you're the same person, you're the same old thing, right? But that's not true, because hopefully, we're all evolving, we're all growing, we're all changing, we're all maturing, and we're different people. I'm a substantially different person today than I was 20 years ago. But I still have a tendency to view my family members as if they were who they were 20 years ago. And that prevents us from actually being present to who they are Now, the pain of our past shapes the perspective of our present. So that was the complaint. The complaint of of Miriam was, you're neglecting your wife. It wasn't just that he married a Cushite woman. It was the nature of the relationship, how, how Moses was treating her. Now, why was just Miriam punished? When I first, I've known the story for 10 years, I don't know. I read it a week or two ago, and I read it again, and I read the part, the cloud came up, and just Miriam had leprosy. And I'm like, what? I hadn't seen that before, and I was kind of, kind of mad. <laughs> like, what's up with this? Uh, this is just another example of the Old Testament being weird and being patriarchal and being misogynist and, and all this kind of stuff. When you go back to the text, this is the best explanation I have. When you go back to the text in Hebrew, the implication is clearly that Miriam was the primary complainer, and she was the one that brought the issue to Aaron, and Aaron just listened. So the issue really is that Miriam was the primary culprit in this story. So that's why just Miriam was punished. That's the best answer I got. If you don't like it, Google. (laughs) I don't know. So why was this a sin? So why was she just punished? Why was it a sin at all? Why was it a sin that Miriam had this complaint? I want to say quickly, the sin was not the accusation. The sin was not her frustration or her concern for the state of their marriage. That was not the problem. So the the sin was not the accusation, it was the approach. And her approach was she went to Aaron and not directly to Moses. 
She wasn't seeking to bring about reconciliation or restoration or to make things right. She was kind of rabble-rousing. She was complaining and murmuring and spreading discontent. She was trying to make Moses look bad and make herself maybe look good in the story. God speaks to us too, right? So the sin in the story is not the nature of her concern. It's not the accusation. It doesn't mean we can, we can never hold leaders accountable. That's not the point of the story. Because her concern was valid as the treatment of the wife. It's a good concern. The issue was how she handled the situation. She went outside of just confronting Moses directly. You guys ever complain about one family member to another family member? No? Is it just me? You guys ever go to like a a dinner and like one part of your family didn't show up and they become the the topic of conversation? Is Is that just me too? And like you know, like when you leave, if you have to leave like 20 minutes earlier or half an hour earlier or something, like as soon as you leave, you know like the topic's just going to turn to you and your family. And they're going to be talking smack about you. Is that is still just me? Okay. So some families I've heard talk about this family member to this family member and don't talk directly. And it's not great. It, it actually causes further turmoil. It doesn't bring about reconciliation. Solomon says it like this in Proverbs. He says, for lack of wood, a fire goes out, and when there, where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Basically, as soon as you start to spread slander or resentment or murmur against other people, other people like that too, and it just spreads like wildfire. Now, James says it like this in, in, in the book of James in the New Testament. He says, your tongue is like a spark that sets an entire forest on fire. So the issue with Miriam is not the nature of her accusation, it's the approach that she takes. She takes to kind of speak ill of Moses to other people. Now in this story, we know that Moses was approachable. Why? Because verse three says that Moses was the most humble guy in the world. Now that's a little braggy for me, okay? Moses wrote the book of Numbers, dropped verse three, I'm the most humble guy in the world, okay? A little braggy for me, but based on the other evidence we have of of this story and beyond, it's actually true. Moses was a very humble guy. In fact, at the end of the story, he's not like looking at what happened to Miriam and going, yes, got her. You know, he's heartbroken. He's pleading for her. He says, God, please heal her. Don't punish her for this. So we know from this story and from other stories that Moses is actually a very approachable guy, that she could have taken this frustration and this concern directly to him, and it probably would have gone fine. And that's the idea, right? That's the ideal for all of us, that when we have disappointment or frustration or concern, that we can go to someone and that they'll handle it like Moses might have handled it in this story, that they'll handle it with humility, with compassion, with kindness, and with concern. That's the hope, right? Um, So God says, don't go sideways to people and and, and spread and murmur and, and, and multiply complaints. Go directly to the person. What happens if they're not like Moses? What happens if they're not the most humble person in the world? And they actually uh, just re-wound you or make things worse. What are you supposed to do then? Jesus has some pointed words for us about the nature of conflict and conflict resolution when it comes to family or friends or people we care about. He says this in Matthew. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I just want to push pause right there and zoom in. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Someone sins against you, go directly to them and bring up the situation and confess 
how your experience of them wounding you or sinning against you, however you want to frame that. And it says, if the person listens to you, if they behave like Moses might have behaved, in humility and compassion and there's restoration, it says, you have gained a brother. One thing I've learned as I begin to navigate and try to have difficult conversations with myself is that when I am vulnerable with someone else and I share with them, hey, when you did this, when you said this, whatever, it, it, it wounded me. When I open myself up to, to sharing my fears or my disappointments or whatever that might be, when, when I'm able to do that and that person is able to accept that, embrace that, and handle that feedback well, I found that when the conversation goes well, our relationship is stronger after that than it was before that. Because we were able to be honest and open and more intimate with each other and work through it. I, I found this so true in my marriage that when we get into heated conversations and we actually stay in it and actually get to, to, the, to the root of some of the issues, that once we work through that, we feel more intimate and connected after that than we did before that. That's the ideal situation. If someone sins against you, go directly to them with it. And if they respond well, you have gained a brother. You have gained a sister. You have grown the relationship and strengthened it. If that doesn't happen, Jesus continues. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus says, go directly to the person one-on-one. And if it goes well, great. And if it doesn't, go gather a few other associates, people that know you and the other person, and, and, and kind of bring a mediation to the room. Let them hear all sides of the story and gain perspective. And if they agree with you that this person was in the wrong and they need to repent and they need to, to seek reconciliation, then that's what takes place. You say, um, we're going to bring a few people together and we're going to try to make this work. This is kind of like a family intervention, right? Or something like that. And Jesus says, but even then, even then, if, that, if it doesn't go well after that, if they still refuse to acknowledge uh, the, the, the conflict or the disappointment, and if they still re refuse to repent, then treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, what does that mean when Jesus says it? How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He treated them with compassion, with humility, with kindness, with love. But he also understood that they weren't in this unit. They weren't a part of this, this relationship of commitments and expectations and camaraderie and friendship. He says, treat them like you would an outsider, that you, maybe you long for them to be a part of the family again, to be a part of, uh, of the movement again, but for now, you have to walk away from them. You, you have to kind of end the relationship. And I just want to encourage you guys today that there may be some relationships that you're in that you just simply need to walk away from because the person cannot respond uh, to in conflict resolution. They can't respond well when, when disappointment flares up. And Jesus says it's okay. There might be some family members that you have to end relationship with or reset boundaries up in a really strong and, and clear way. But I also want to challenge you and encourage you that to be patient in making that judgment call. Because that's a pretty big judgment call. To do the work, to, to seek out reconciliation one-on-one, -on -one, to seek out reconciliation as a family unit. Um, and at the end of the day, if you need to walk away, Jesus says it's okay for you to walk away. But don't rush into ending the relationship. Actually do the work and go directly to the person. Some family members might be so toxic that you need to, to separate from them. So why, what was the sin? The sin was not her concern for how, concerned that they were married, but how Moses was treating his wife. And the issue, uh, the sin itself was how he approached, how Miriam approached that situation. She went to Aaron and not directly to Moses. 
This next question I have is, why leprosy? Why this specific punishment? It seems a little extreme. I had a friend that went on, uh, was planning to go on vacation this past weekend to the Blue Mountain, uh, you know, Blue Ridge Mountains, there you go. Um, had an awesome plan, friends, family, cabin, kids, all that kind of stuff. And like on Thursday, youngest son got hand, foot, mouth. Plans changed, right? This is like that, but with a million people mad at you about the plans changing. The entire camp had to stop for a week while Miriam healed. God struck her with leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease that causes kind of numbness to your extremities, so you can't feel pain. So if something stabs you or makes a wound or burns, you don't feel it, so you don't immediately back off. So it creates more damage. Eventually, it just eats away at you, and you rot away. And that's kind of the, the gross language that was used in the story. She's like a, a, a kid whose flesh is rotting away. That's why it's this, this strong language. So God strikes her with leprosy. Well, why leprosy? I think the reason she got leprosy is it was a visual representation of what was going on internally for her, what was going on spiritually for her, what was going to happen to the whole camp if the murmuring and complaining wasn't kept in check. God wanted to give a visual representation of the spiritual nature of that conversation, of that relationship. And something was going to sit there and, and begin to fester and grow and become way worse than it originally was. Have you guys ever had something fester in your, in your soul, in your life? Something that you've held onto that just eats away at you? If, if slander and resentment go unchecked, they can fester. They can eat away at your soul. My mom and her sisters all live within a quarter mile of each other in Louisiana, meaning they should see each other all the time. Now, about four or five years ago, um, her, my mom's sisters deeply wounded her with the decision they made. And to be completely fair to my mother, she had every right to be upset and wounded by their decisions. She was in the right in this story. But I remember for months in our weekly conversation, she kept bringing up the story of the disappointment and the pain and how she, she hasn't talked to them and all this kind of stuff. About a month or two into the conversation, I was like, oh, Mom, have you told them how you feel? Well, heavens no. <laughs> of course not. I don't want them to know I'm angry at them. That, that, that lets them know that they won or that they can hurt me or something like that. It lets them know that I'm angry. I said, Mom, I, I think they know. You haven't talked to them in months and you live right down the street from them. I think they know. And she held on to this thing for, for two years. Two years of not being in a relationship with her sisters because she couldn't get over the, the pain of disappointment. She kept talking to me about it and I kept saying, go talk to them about it. Eventually, they hashed it out, and I think they're working on the relationship. It's getting stronger. But the point is, is that sometimes when we hold on to, to wounds, when we hold on to disappointments or frustrations, the holding on to it does more damage to us than the original offense. And that's what was taking place here. My mom was rightfully upset. But her inability to, to go and bring that to the sisters led to years of estrangement. And when we hold on to wounds and stuff like that, it can, it can grow, it can fester, and it can, it can create a rift, obviously, in the relationship. You just tend to get stuck in the relationship. And that's what's happening here with the tribe of Israel. They just literally got stuck. You guys can't move forward until this is resolved. Because right? th this kind of behavior unchecked will tear this community apart. Seven years ago, or about seven years ago, my family and I, we, we, we moved to Richmond for me to work here at Area 10. Now, two weeks after moving to Richmond, my, my father passed away. 
And I remember we got his ashes from Louisiana. We, we came back to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That's where we're from back in the day. And um, we did the funeral. Now, because I am in ministry, they asked me to um, do the ceremony, do the funeral. That's one of those dual relationship pieces where I'm the pastor, but I'm also preaching my own father's funeral. And it was kind of weird because my aunts and uncles, they're sharing all these fun stories they have with my dad and all this kind of stuff. And they're sharing all this good stuff, but I'm like, you guys haven't been around for the past 15 years. And there's so much pain and disappointment in those 15 years. You guys don't know my dad like I know my dad. And it put me in a really awkward position to, to preach this funeral um, where I wasn't going to say all that stuff. I mean, I'm going to say nice things and honoring things externally, but internally being knowing I'm processing a lot of pain and disappointment. I am not thrilled with our last conversation that I had with my father. It was, on the, it was a phone call, um, and two days later he passed away, and I wasn't happy with how things left off of us. And it was just a weird place to be in where I had to honor him in a, a kind way, which is the right thing to do, but at the same time hold on to this tension of disappointment. I've spent the past few years really working through and healing and, and learning to let go and learning to grieve the weight of the things I experienced with my dad. But on, alongside that, I've also begun to see my dad in a fuller expression of who he is, that he wasn't just the pain that he caused. You know, I think sometimes in our family, someone wounds us deeply, and then that's all we can think about when we think of them. And we miss out on so much more that's, that's there to him. And I began to see my dad in a fuller light and began to have a lot of gratitude for things I've actually learned from him and gained from him and parts of me that are intrinsically tied to who he is. Um, but that was a journey. That was a journey of of grieving, but also gratitude. Now Moses also gave us the Ten Commandments, or God gave him the Ten Commandments, and, and one of those Ten Commandments is to honor your mother and your father. And I want to point out something really quick there. It doesn't say love your mother and father, or certainly that's a good thing. It doesn't say obey your mother and father, though for the most part that's probably a good thing too. The command is to honor your mother and your father. Now the word honor in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word kabod, and it means to give weight to something to understand and to recognize the significance or the impact that something has had on you. The, uh, it doesn't just mean the good things. It can mean the bad things as well. To grow in an awareness of the impact of someone and the weight that someone has had in your life. And when it comes to our parents and our family, the weight is huge. And I think a part of honoring our parents is learning to grieve and recognize how sometimes our disappointments have shaped who we are now learning to recognize how, how it has shaped us and to grieve that and process that. That's a, feeling the weight and acknowledging the weight of that. And another piece of that, of course, is to have gratitude for the weight of significance. At the very least, all of our parents gave us the gift of life. You are in this room today because of your parents. That's significant. Even if they are the worst possible parents, they're completely absent from your life, and I understand the weight and the pain of that. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But at the very least... They gave you the gift of life. And how do you honor your parents when there's disappointment? Well, you acknowledge the disappointment and you grieve it. You recognize the longings that you had and the desires that you had, the disappointments that are there, and you begin to grieve and process that. So it's grief and gratitude. To honor your parents is to, to understand the full impact that they've had in your life. It's going to be grief and gratitude. Our parents and our family have significant impact in our lives. 
I want to close with a few questions just to kind of tie us back into the story. Um, now, I, I want to say, today's topic was dealing with difficult people, family. I want to say this before I even get to that. My family right now gives me the greatest joy, period. <laughs> I get so much life from them. This was a heavy sermon. I talked about the negative side of family. Family is a huge topic and can't be covered in one sermon. Um, and family is a beautiful thing as well. It enriches our lives. So I want to <laughs> add that piece. It's not just bad stuff. Um, here's the questions. Is there a relationship in your life right now where a disappointment is festering? Where it's got a hold of you, you're, you're telling other people about it, but you're not actually directing your frustration to the source of the disappointment. Could be family, could be friends, could be whatever. How is that disappointment playing out in your life, even outside of that relationship? And then lastly, what would it take to muster up the courage to try and make amends in that relationship? What would that look like? Let's pray. God, thank you for... Uh, the depth and the richness of your story. We thank you for Jesus, who is a leader and a, a teacher that, that, that teaches us to put on a posture of humility and forgiveness, um, but also to have healthy boundaries, to have a, a character of truth speaking with kindness. So I pray that you teach us to be like Jesus in our lives and how we interact with our family members. Um, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.